This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. I should get up here one of these days and tell you guys to stand up, huh? Just to keep it real. Kids, you're staying in here this morning, so before we go to the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the, the gift of the saints and the fellowship that you have brought to us. Father, I thank you that you have united us in grace through faith in our Savior. And that ultimately, Lord, he, he unites us more than, than anything we have in common. Father, I pray that you would show us again your love and your mercy, your faithfulness, your power in your word, by your spirit, Lord. Father, it's in the name of our Savior that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to continue our study of the Psalms of Ascent in Psalm 125. If you want to start heading there in your Bibles. I saw an interesting interview recently where a reporter named Piers Morgan asked Cristiano Ronaldo, the world-famous soccer player, excuse me, football player, yes, but I'm not going to say that out loud, world-famous soccer player, how many people he trusted completely? He asked him, how many people in the world do you completely trust? Trust 100%. And, and he thought about it for a few seconds and before he answered, four people. And Piers appeared to be kind of surprised by his answer that out of all the people that that man is surrounded with, that Cristiano Ronaldo only trusted four people in his entire life completely. And I thought, how would you answer that question? If you could line everyone up in the world that you know and play a game of trust duck duck goose, how many people would you say you completely trust? 100%. Maybe we need to ask, you know, how do you know if you trust someone? Because the answer is, is borne out by our actions, isn't it? For example, I know for a fact that every single person in here trusts gravity completely. Because if I offered you a million dollars to jump off of a building, you wouldn't take it. Your actions would prove that you inherently trust gravity, no questions. I bring this up because Psalm 125 is about trust. The psalmist is going to tell us that people who trust the Lord have security and stability, that they have permanence. So that's what I want you to see this morning. This morning, I want you to see that those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved. That those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved. Let's jump right into our passage this morning, where the first thing we see in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 125, the first thing we see is the promise. 
The first thing we see is the promise. Verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Now, there's two parts to this first stanza that are conveniently located in verse 1 and verse 2. The first part in verse 1 is the promise that those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They cannot be moved. Now, we see this name Mount Zion. We see it all over Scripture. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, Mount Zion is a term the Bible uses to describe where God lives. It's a term that the Bible uses to describe where God lives. Lives, meaning in the Old Testament, Mount Zion usually refers to Jerusalem because that's where the temple was, that's where God lived, and Jerusalem is on, a, well, it's what Middle Easterners would call a mountain. People who don't live in the Rockies, we might call it a big hill. Um, but at least to them, the Old Testament, Mount Zion usually refers to Jerusalem because that's where God lived. However, since Mount Zion is a name for where God lives, the New Testament usually refers, uses Mount Zion to refer to heaven. We know that's where God lives. But either way, whether we're we're talking about heaven or Jerusalem, the point the psalmist is making is that those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved from His presence. They cannot be moved from His presence. We might think of it as, as, as Him saying, trying to move someone who trusts in the Lord from His presence would be like trying to dislodge the Sandias. It ain't gonna happen. That's the first part of this stanza. But the second part of this stanza answers a question we should all be asking when we hear something like that, which is, why can't they be moved? Well, verse 2, because as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people. The psalmist is making a one-to-one comparison here. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They cannot be moved because the Lord is like the mountains that surround Jerusalem and protect it and defend it. He defends and guards His people. And we have actually see this play out both physically and spiritually. In 70 AD, when the Romans came to squash the Jews once and for all, they ran into exactly what this psalmist is describing. What was supposed to be this quick military exercise turned into one of the longest, if not the longest, siege that the Romans ever led because Jerusalem was so well defended geographically speaking. However, just like we see this play out physically in 70 AD, the Bible also gives us several examples of this spiritually. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 6, you don't need to turn there, I'm going to summarize. Um, The the, uh, Syrians uh, were trying to assassinate the king of Judah. But somehow, the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, knew when and where the Syrians were going to be, and so he would avoid them. So the king of Syria was like, okay, who's you know, spilling the beans to, to Israel to let them know where we're going? And, and one of his servants answered and said, no, king, nobody's telling him what we're doing. There's a prophet in Israel, in, in Judah, named Elisha, and his God tells him when and where we're doing things, and then he warns the king. So the king of Syria was like, great, let's go kill Elisha. So Elisha's just chilling one day, and the, the Assyrian army shows up to assassinate him. And like any normal human being, his servant goes into full freakout mode. And Elisha's like, dude, chill. Don't you know we're going to be okay? And the servant's like, no. 
So Elisha prayed that God would open his eyes, the servant's eyes, to see what he was talking about. And 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17 says, So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw that they were surrounded on all sides by horses and chariots of fire on the mountains. Brothers and sisters, still today, you are surrounded by God. Nothing happens to you that God doesn't allow. Nobody sneaks in through his defenses and does something unexpected. Those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved. So there's two questions I think this passage instantly wants us to ask. The first one is pretty obvious. Are you one of those who trust in the Lord? Are you one of those who trust in the Lord? Are you one of those who, like this psalm describes, trusts in the Lord to protect and guard and, and keep you when the world tries to blindside you? If you're here this morning, I, I would beg you if, you, if you are not one who trusts in the Lord, to please answer and think about this question, ponder it deeply. Because our world would tell you that, that when I offer you this idea of trusting in the Lord, that I'm just offering you one of several different options. Could not be farther from the truth. God is not an option for protection. He's not one of the many gods you can choose to defend you. He is your only option for protection. If you do not trust in Him, you have no protection. The other people and things you trust in for, for when you're done with this life, when you move on to whatever is next, they're like walls made out of paper. They will offer you no defense. Jesus Christ is your only hope for safety and protection because, listen, He's the one you're going to have to stand before when you die. He's the one you're going to have to answer to. And he's going to ask you who you trust. It's a pass or fail test. And the requirement is perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. No extra credit. No do-overs. No, no allowances made. But if you trust Jesus Christ, he will give you his perfection in exchange for simply believing that you need him to. So I ask again, are you one of those who trusts in the Lord? And I know we're in church, so most of you are like, duh, Pastor Grant. Of course I trust in the Lord. That's why I'm here. Awesome. Then question number two is, why do you freak out when things don't go the way you want them to? If we are those who trust in the Lord, why are we also those who freak out when things don't go the way we want them to? If you trust in the Lord, then why are you so confused and hurt when things don't go according to your plan? You see, our trust in the Lord is a perfect example of what we would call stated theology versus practical theology. Meaning there are a lot of things we say we believe. We say we trust God implicitly, but then there are the things our actions prove we actually believe. Like I said earlier, our actions would prove that we don't just say we trust in gravity. However, we say, I trust that the Lord is sovereign, and then we get angry when things don't go how we want them to. We say, I trust that the Lord is good, and then we freak out when He doesn't do what we want Him to do. Which takes us to verse 3, because... If the promise is those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved, then let's look at the problem. 
in verse 3, the problem. God says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. If you just glance down at verse 5, he adds, But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, that's the wicked, the Lord will lead them away with evildoers. Now, some of you are going to have different translations of that particular verse. So the bottom line, the psalmist is, is saying that the wicked will never be allowed to rule over those who live in the land allotted to the righteous because they won't be allowed to stay. But we need to make a little connection here because the psalmist has changed directions just a little bit. He shifted gears just slightly. You see, instead of referring to Mount Zion, now he says the land allotted to the righteous. That's where those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved from. So why does he call it the land allotted to the righteous? And what does that have to do with those who trust in the Lord? He's making a reference all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 where God gave or allotted Israel to Abraham. All the way back in Genesis, beginning in chapter 12 and then through 15, God called Abraham out of his hometown called Ur and he told him to go to this other place which we now know today is Israel. And when Abraham got there, God said, Hey Abe, all of this land, it's yours. I'm giving it to you. And I'm also going to give you a nation to fill this land and and through that nation, there's going to be this blessing for all the other nations in the world. It's this big plan that I have, but it starts with this land here that I'm giving you. But here's the thing. Listen, after God promised Abraham he'd do that, Genesis 15, chapter, verse 6 says, And Abraham believed, he trusted the Lord, and the Lord counted it, Abraham's trust, to him as righteousness. In other words, listen, the land allotted to the righteous has never been a land allotted to people who do righteous things. It was like two chapters before Abraham just tripped and fell into unrighteousness. Bad. It was never a land allotted to people who obeyed everything God told them to do. No, listen, this is important. The land allotted to the righteous was always... Land allotted to people who were righteous because they trusted the Lord. The first inhabitant of this land, Abraham, was allotted that land because he trusted, because he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted his trust as righteousness. The Bible is very clear. Abe's descendants are not those who share his blood. No, his, his descendants are those who share his trust, his faith, which means we are heirs. We are heirs to the land that is allotted to the righteous, not because we're righteous on our own, but because the Lord has counted our trust in Jesus as righteousness. But therein lies the problem. Do you see it? We look at verse 1 in light of verse 3. Then it is those who trust in the Lord who cannot be moved from the land allotted to the righteous because the Lord has counted their trust in Him as righteous. It's a circular thing. 
Let me say that a little simpler. It is those who trust in the Lord who cannot be moved from the land allotted to the righteous. However, I don't know about you, but the problem for me is that I know in my heart that I don't always trust the Lord like I say I do. The trust we have is not always borne out by our actions, is it? And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we never trust the Lord. I think you'd agree with me that usually it's more like oftentimes we trust and don't trust at the same times, like, like a mixture. Like a part of us wants to trust the Lord completely, but we often find ourselves not doing what we want to do. So what are we supposed to do with this? It's those who trust the Lord who is counted as righteousness, they get to stay, and those who don't trust don't get to stay. And we trust and don't trust at the same time. How do we reconcile the truth that this psalm is saying that those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved with the fact that our trust is at least oftentimes fickle? I saw an interesting video recently where two world-class rock climbers got together to, to climb together. One of them's name was Alex Honnold. You might remember him. He's the guy who free soloed El Capitan in Yosemite, which basically means he climbed about 7,500 vertical feet of rock without ropes. He's been a great specimen for psychologists who like to study fear. But the other climber was a guy named Magnus Mitba, who is a world champion Norwegian rock climber. He's not a slouch by any means. But they had made plans to climb some cliff somewhere, but when, when Magnus showed up, Alex said he had a different idea. So Alex took Magnus to what he thought was, what he said was a beginner cliff near where he lived. And by beginner, he means not completely vertical and still like eight to 900 feet tall. Meaning I think Alex and I have a different definition of beginner. But anyway, Alex told Magnus, he said, I thought you and I could just free solo this cliff together. It's easy. The look on Magnus's face told you everything you needed to know. This world-class, renowned rock climber was stuck somewhere between unbelief and terrified. See, the problem was Magnus didn't trust Alex. Alex said it was easy, but Magnus's actions revealed that he didn't trust Alex. But Alex kept on, and he kept on, and he kept encouraging him, explaining to him how truly simple this climb would be for him. They tried a little bit at the bottom together, and then they went up a little bit higher together, and then they tried a little bit higher together until Magnus was like, you're right, I think I can do this. What changed? Why was Magnus all of a sudden willing to, to risk his life? Well, it was he trusted. And he trusted because Alex had proved to him that he could trust him. That this cliff, in fact, was easy. For Magnus, at least. Meaning it was trust that was earned, not demanded. When we think about our level of trust in the Lord, or lack of it, there's this little story tucked away in Mark chapter 9, where a father brought his boy to Jesus for help. This boy was demon-possessed, and the, the demon kept trying to kill the boy. The father said the demon would try to throw the boy into the fire. 
And Jesus said to this father, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, I can heal your son if you believe I can. And I want you to listen to the father's response because he says something very interesting. Mark chapter 9, verse 24 says, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And you see, the New Testament doesn't use the word trust very often. Maybe two to five times, depending on your translation, in the whole New Testament. Rather than using the word trust, the New Testament uses the word believe. Believe. It comes from the root word of being persuaded, being convinced. In other words, the Father said, I trust you, Jesus. Help my untrusting. You ever feel that way? When it comes to your trust in the Lord? I trust you, Jesus, but help what I don't trust. I say that because, you see, we think the problem is that we need to somehow conjure up more trust. That we need to grit our teeth, bite the bullet, try harder, and trust the Lord more, even though everything inside of us is not. But Scripture says that rather than trying to generate more trust on your own, the solution is that we simply trust the Lord to grow our trust in Him. That we be persuaded, that we be convinced that the Lord will grow in us the trust He wants us to have, the trust we need. Listen to how Paul put it in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. He said, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Meaning, were you saved because you did things right or were you saved because you trusted what you heard? He continues then into verse 3. He says, then, are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, brothers and sisters, we are consumed with this idea that we somehow have to participate in our salvation. That God can't do it on His own. He really needs my help, trust me. Sure, He saved me by grace through faith, but now i got to prove to Him that He made a good purchase. That I'm not a complete schmuck. I can do this, God, I got it. When the truth of the, the matter is that God has only always asked us to trust that He's going to do what we so clearly cannot. How many times do we have to prove to ourselves we can't do it before we're just like, okay, God, you do it? A lot. That's why God makes life hard, to grind it out of us. He's only ever asked us to trust Him, to be persuaded, to be convinced that like what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that He who began a good work in us is faithful to bring it to completion. In other words, another way to look at Psalm 125 is that those who trust in the Lord for everything, for everything, some of you need to hear this again. Everything, including His help to trust, those people cannot be moved. 
from the land allotted to the righteous. I'm assuming most of you have never done any construction work from a harness on the side of a building, so let me explain. You put on a harness, that harness is tied off to a rope somewhere up above, and you walk up to the edge of wherever you're going to be working, and you pull on that rope a little lightly, you just pull on it. And you pull on it a little harder. Then you put your foot into the ground, and you yank on it really hard. You get on your radio, and you talk to the guy up there. It's hooked up, right? He calls down. He says, yep, you're good to go. You yank on it again, and then you slowly walk out to the edge of that. I've never seen ever anybody just be like, great, woo, and jump off. <laughs> no, you walk out to the edge of that thing, and there is this moment where you have to give in. And you have to put everything you are into the trust of ropes. You have to let go of the floor. You have to let go of whoever, and you've got to just sit back. In other words, what Psalm 125 is describing about here is a complete abandonment of ourself to God. Letting go of the ledges and the footholds that we cling to to supplement our trust in the Lord. And leaning back and trusting that the Lord who provided our righteousness for us will also provide everything else He wants us to have, including trust. So do you trust that the Lord will grow your trust in Him? You ever wondered how faith the size of a mustard seed could do anything? That's how. It's just faith that God will do everything. That much. Do you trust that God would not have given Jesus Christ's life on the cross and then left it up to us to work it out? Left it up to us to hold things together? Like, guys, Jesus died. Please get this right. Of course not. Jesus said multiple times that it is He, it is He who will not lose anyone who is given to Him by the Father. So do you trust, are you persuaded that you cannot be moved, not because of your own ability to trust, but because you trust that your God will keep you from moving? Because brothers and sisters, those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved. Those who trust in the Lord cannot be moved. That's the promise and the problem. So lastly then, let's look at the prayer in verse 4 and 5, the prayer. The psalmist says, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Now here's what I think is the little gem that's hidden in verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 and 5 is like a litmus test for trust. And let me explain. You'll see what I mean. I don't know about you, but when I read verses like this, I always think, how can someone pray that the Lord would do good to them when they clearly know they don't deserve it? I mean, doesn't that kind of sound presumptuous? Like, God, I know I'm a sinner, but go ahead and still do good to me. Well, sure, it, it, it is presumptuous if you're the one responsible for being upright in heart. 
if you're the one responsible for the righteousness deserving that goodness. So here's the litmus test of verse 4 and 5. When it comes to trust, this prayer is not presumptuous if it's born out of trust that God does those things. It's not presumptuous to ask God to do good to you if you trust that He's the one creating the upright heart. It's not presumptuous to ask God to do good to you if you trust that He's the one who makes you righteous. Let me put verse 4 into the form of a question. Can you pray confidently? Can you pray confidently for the Lord to do good to you because you trust that He has made you upright in heart? Or do you feel guilty? Like you shouldn't pray for that. Presumptuous. Can you pray confidently for the Lord to do good to you, not because you deserve it or earned it in any way, but because you trust that through Jesus Christ, He has made you deserving of His goodness? That's hard to say in a Reformed church. I don't deserve anything. Well, then what did Jesus do? Of course, we don't deserve anything on our own. Because that's the kind of trust the psalmist wants us to have. Trust so deeply rooted, so persuaded by the sufficiency of the Lord's work in Jesus Christ that we can confidently ask for something we know we don't deserve. Brothers and sisters, those who trust in the Lord like that cannot be moved. Those who trust in the Lord not only for for righteousness but, but simply to trust cannot be moved. So let me close with this. What does that kind of trust look like in everyday life? What does that trust that cannot be moved look like? What does it look like on a Tuesday morning to trust the Lord so much that you could confidently ask Him for something you know you don't deserve? Let me give you four ways I think trusting in the Lord like this looks. You know, let me make it five. Way number one, trusting in the Lord like that looks like prayer. Because if you're relying on Him for the trust, then you're going to pray for the trust. It looks like a dependence on Him, a prayer. God, I need you more. I need you to grow in me trust. I need you to grow in me that desire to just sit back and completely abandon myself to you and to your plan. That's number one. But if you do that, if you pray that way, then secondly, this kind of trust doesn't just look like prayer, it also looks like participation. It also looks like participation. If we trust that the Lord is sovereign and that He is good, then rather than fighting against His path for our life, we'll participate in it. If we trust that the good and the bad that the joyful and the sad, that the hard and the easy, the happy and the not happy, everything that happens in our life, if we trust those times are God's plan, then rather than fighting against Him, we'll seek to know what He wants to teach us in those seasons and then participate with Him instead of against Him in our growth.
just like Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, he said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is the Lord who works and wills in you to his good pleasure. That's the second thing. It looks like prayer. It looks like participation. And thirdly, trusting in the Lord like this, it looks like peace. It looks like peace. If you trust in your Lord that much, how can we not just have peace? Peace rooted in a trust that cannot be moved. It's not detached. It's not a cold peace. Not, not apathetic. Not like unemotional robots like, I don't care because I trust God. Not like that. It's peace that keeps our, our grief from turning into despair. It's peace that undergirds our trials and our heartaches with hope. Peace rooted so deeply in the trust we have in our Lord that even when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's third. Fourth, this kind of trust also looks like poise. It also looks like poise. If we trust our Lord that deeply, if we trust our Lord even for help to trust Him more, then how can we not be poised when this world is falling down around us? Knowing that the one who died for us on the cross is also the one who will bring us safely home. How can our trust not look like confidence and security and stability to the world. This trust, it looks like prayer. It looks like participation. It looks like immense peace. And it looks like great poise. And lastly, and most importantly, how can that kind of trust not look like praise? How can it not look like praise? If the trust we have in our Lord has been earned by Him at so great a cost, how can we not praise? Listen, our God did not hang speakers on the moon and say, trust me because I said so. He could have, but He didn't because that's not the kind of God He is. No, He showed mercy to Adam and Eve after they sinned and then He said, trust me. He saved Israel out of Egypt, and then he said, trust me. He defeated David's enemies, and then he said, trust me. And brothers and sisters, he died on the cross so you and I could dwell in the land allotted to the righteous, and then he said, trust me. He showed it first. He, he gave us the proof that we can trust him. How can those who trust in the Lord... Those who trust in a Lord who proved He will not forsake them with His own life. How can we not be creatures of praise? Oh, on that cross, how it was seen. I can go now ever trusting in the One who died for me. What could I bring? Your gift is complete. So I trust you, simply trust you, Lord, with every part of me. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for this gift you have given us in your word. Father, I pray that you would show us your mercy and your grace again and again and again. Father, I pray that you would do good to those who you have made righteous and give us more trust. Grow us in more trust, not for our own selves, but so that we could be better worshipers that we could reflect our trust back to you as glory. Father, we don't like to do it, but I thank you for the hard times. I thank you for the hard times where you show yourself faithful and trustworthy in order to grow our trust in you. Pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart of participation in those times and not resistance. Father, I thank you for this gift of peace. Thank you for this gift of grace. And Father, we know all of it is only available to us because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it is in His name that I pray. Amen.